Hi, everybody. Thank you for joining me here on the Bare Bones Yoga Podcast, Conversations for Yoga Teachers. My name is Karen Fabian. I'm the founder of Bare Bones Yoga. I'm a yoga teacher and educator, and my goal here is to provide you, the yoga teacher, and other listeners with interesting, compelling content designed to pique your interest in teaching help you grow as a teacher, and support you on your path to sharing this wonderful practice with your students. I've been teaching for over 14 years, and through my classes, workshops, online courses, books, and other content, I focus on the anatomy of yoga and how teachers can learn this complex subject and present it to their students in an understandable way, all designed to help them bring more impact to their teaching. Even though we're not in the same room, I want you to envision for each episode that we've sat down for tea in a cozy coffee shop. Some days we'll talk about technical teaching topics, while some days we might have a teacher friend join in on the conversation, and other days we'll face some of the personal challenges that can come up when we take on the journey of being a teacher, knowing that the more authentic we can be, the more we can impact others. For more information about my products and programs and to contact me at any time, just visit my website at barebonesyoga.com. Let's get into today's episode. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Conversations for Yoga Teachers. I am your host, Karen Fabian, and this is episode 22. First of all, I want to thank you so much for tuning in today and listening. I've got a pretty interesting topic here to share with you. And I want to start out on this episode with a scenario. And I'm going to take you through the scenario to kind of set the tone, kind of lay the groundwork for this conversation that we're going to have today. So just kind of follow along here with this story and see what you think. This is a story of a yoga teacher who wanted to teach full-time. She wanted to leave her corporate job and devote her professional career to teaching. She developed a plan for how she would do it. She created spreadsheets, wrote out goals, networked, put in the hard work, and was able to hit the goals she needed to so she could leave her corporate work to teach full-time. She even sold her house so that she'd have a nest egg and instead of keeping the house, downsized to a smaller place. Her teaching career was off to a great start and she really felt like she was living her dharma, right? She was living her purpose in life, her true goal. But each month when she tried to pay her rent, she just didn't have enough coming in to cover it. So month after month, she used money from her nest egg and when that was gone, she took out a loan and started using that to cover the difference. All the while, she was trying to find additional teaching jobs, and while she was able to find some, she just couldn't fill in enough slots on her schedule. So after a few years of this going this way and building up $30,000 in debt, she decided reluctantly to return to work and kept teaching part-time. She did that for a few years, continuing to teach on the side, and she paid off her debt with a little help from withdrawal from her retirement savings. When she eventually relaunched her own yoga business, leaving the corporate world again, she was better prepared with a plan, and she has been working on her own, running her own business since 2010. 
Now, let me share with you that that teacher is me. That is part of my story. At least the part that has to do with money and how it factored into that part of my journey as a yoga teacher. That certainly isn't my entire story as a yoga teacher, but it's part of my personal journey. In fact, that story is the basis of my book called Stretched, Build Your Yoga Business, Grow Your Teaching Techniques, because I never wanted another teacher to go through what I did. Despite all the planning I did, I still ended up in significant debt, and after a few years back at it, and with the benefit of reflection and additional experience, I was able to share some business lessons and write that book. Now, why are we focusing on money today? Especially because so many of my episodes and my passion is anatomy and other teaching topics. And I'm sure you've listened to some of the episodes where I've brought in other teachers and other wellness uh, professionals, and we've had really interesting uh, conversations. Well, I wanted to focus about on money today because how you deal with and manage your money is a big part of how you manage your journey as a yoga teacher. Now, I call it a journey, although you can also call it a career, whether you're a full-time or part-time teacher. No one would ever question discussing financial matters when it comes to other careers, but for some reason, the issue of money as it relates to yoga, teacher, yoga teaching continues to be something that raises conflict. Just the other day, there was an article in the New York Times about a studio system called Core Power Yoga and some of the practices they allegedly employ in order to build attendance at their teacher trainings. And there was other information in there about requirements for their teachers who are on staff. Now, this is not the first time, nor will it be the last, that a yoga studio system has been profiled and their business practice practices um, scrutinized. What was interesting to me as I saw the posts about the article on social media and then looked at some of the comments was that people were commenting that yoga teaching is not supposed to be for money, that we are supposed to be teaching for our love of the practice and our dedication in bringing it to people. Now, this is an ongoing philosophy that while possibly rooted in yoga, although if someone can send me the reference, I would love to see it. I'm not, I'm not sure there, maybe there is some reference in yoga philosophy that says you're not supposed to teach in a way where you get reimbursed. Um, but in any event, the reality is it no longer serves us as teachers today. Now, it's clear that the practice of yoga, as well as, as, as well as how it's presented here in the United States, as well as many other places, has changed over the years from the fundamental practice that started out thousands of years ago. While much of the practice is still true to its roots, in terms of the actual poses, the asana, much of what surrounds it is different. We often in classes mainly focus on the poses. And even if we offer maybe some seated meditation, we don't often refer to the other limbs in yoga. This was a large part of what I talked about in my last episode with yoga teacher Kat Fowler. So if you missed that one, go back and take a listen because we touch on a lot of this 
in, in terms of her journey and how she's kind of shifted her focus. You know, it's clear that over the years, the growth of the yoga industry has skyrocketed with thousands of teachers being added to the rosters of studios across the country each year. Now, while I don't have the exact figures, I think it's pretty clear from looking at how many teacher trainings there are out there that there is no shortage of interest in teaching yoga. I can certainly say from the studios where I teach, every handful of months or maybe twice a year, there are new teachers enrolled in training. So that's just a couple of studios in, in my, that I run into. So with that as a backdrop, let's talk about some money themes for yoga teachers. I'm going to start with some practical ones and then I'm going to move into some themes that are more philosophical and touch on your feelings about money. This part, interestingly enough, actually touches on themes of abundance, the transient nature of things, gratitude and self-love, which are all rooted in yogic philosophy in one way or another. So let's start out with just some general themes, right? So these are like the practical kind of spreadsheet, pragmatic themes around money for yoga teachers. So the first one is what is your rate? I can't tell you how many times I get emails from yoga teachers and they say, I have this opportunity to teach a class doing something, something, something. And what do you think I should charge? <laughs> now, I understand on some level the question, right? I mean, of course I understand the question and I understand on some level where the inquiry is coming from. You know, when we work as yoga teachers, we're kind of in a way working without a net. As much as the industry has grown, really for the most part, we're all independent teachers. And depending on our personal career path, our business background, a whole host of other things, we may not have a lot of business skills around the idea of creating a business. And one of the biggest parts of creating a business, whether it's something you do full-time or something you do on the side, is knowing your worth. And of course, part of what's factored into knowing your worth takes into account maybe some regional differences, maybe what's happening in your particular part of the country or the world when it comes to the going rate for what you do. But despite all of that, at its heart is a question around what do you think I should charge? And what I encourage teachers to do when I have these conversations is to have a standard rate for different services that you offer and to have that as your standard rate, as the baseline for which any of these conversations begin. Now, again, I talk about this in my book, Stretched, and there are many factors that go into setting your rate. So, of course, one of the first questions that's, that comes up from teachers who are newer is, well, I'm brand new. I graduated from my 200-hour yoga teacher training within the past year, let's say. Should my rate be less than someone who's been teaching for a while? Well. I think that it's reasonable to 
factor in experience as something that would increase your rate. However, as you come out of your yoga teacher training, number one, you weren't a blank slate when you went into your teacher training, right? You went into teacher training with whatever your life story was up until that point. And I always tell teachers that no experience that you have whether it's on the personal side or on the business side or even academic, right? Your, your whatever um, degrees you have, whatever schooling you went through. None of that is wasted in your journey as a yoga teacher. It's not like you work a corporate job after going to college and then you decide to take a teacher training and you're starting like with a blank slate. You have all the experience and it's really just a matter of figuring out how the experience you had, how are you going to apply that to teaching? Now, there'll be some obvious ways we can make a connection, right? So if someone is a physical therapist and now they are going to be a yoga teacher, there's some obvious parallels between working as a physical therapist and being a yoga teacher or being a orthopedic surgeon and being a yoga teacher. Um, but even for someone who's worked in business or someone who's a therapist uh, or someone who um, works in any other kind of business type setting, there are experiences that you gain in that job that are applicable to yoga. What if you've worked in a business career where you've done a lot of presentations? That's a perfect example of someone who has parallel skills that they can apply to their teaching. Because what are we doing when we're teaching? We're presenting a practice in front of a group of people. That is a presentation, right? Without the PowerPoint. So I think you get my point. My point is part of your experience is whatever you did before. And so even as a new graduate or a newer teacher, let's say under three years of teaching experience, you're going to factor that prior experience into the rate you have. You may also have just a general idea of what the going rate is, and I kind of use that with air quotes around it, for yoga teachers in your area, or in general, what the going rate is for teaching. Now, we have to kind of make a little bit of a distinction between teaching studio classes and teaching other kinds of classes. So let's kind of just put it out there and say, we're going to have a rate for teaching in studios, and then we're gonna have other rates that would be for doing anything outside studios. And I tend to call that or refer to that as contract work. So that's work that I get uh, and that other teachers get where the teacher is directly contracting with an entity to do some kind of yoga related work. So what might fall under this category is something like corporate yoga. Let's say you are independently contracted with a particular business to go in once a week and teach corporate yoga. I have a number of contracts with preschools in Boston where I teach children. I've taught children for over 10 years. It's a big part of my business. A big passion of mine is bringing yoga and wellness to kids of all ages. So I have private contracts with preschools and nonprofits. So let's kind of put that in one bucket and there'll be many other things, kinds of classes, kinds of teaching that fall into that. Privates, for instance, would fall into that. 
But let's first look at what's most common for teachers, which is teaching in a studio. Now, one of the things that I think we need to recognize is that studios <laughs> are businesses, right? And again, I don't, I don't mean to um, make light of it. And I, and I think this is part of what was, was being brought to the surface in the article about core power. I, I don't know if any of what was reported was true. I don't know. I've never been to one of their studios. I can't really comment. I don't know any of their teachers. I haven't had conversations. All that I can say is that yoga studios today are businesses. And as such, they have a rate for their services. They have fixed costs and they have variable costs. And all of those things, plus many other things, go into um, their bottom line. And one of the factors that comes out of all that analysis is what they're able to pay their teachers. And so I think part of what we need to understand and recognize as a yoga teacher is we may not have the kind of negotiating leverage with a studio that we might have with an entity we're negotiating with independently. Right. So where we're being um, sought out or maybe we've sought out a connection with a business or a private client or a nonprofit or a school. Let's just take those as four examples. We're the only person that they're talking to at that point, or maybe they're looking at a handful of, of other teachers. But we have a little bit more um, of an ability to talk about our experience and other factors that I'll get into in a little bit uh, to set a rate. However, in the, in the world of the studio systems, right, so in the part of the industry that involves teachers teaching in studios, we just don't always have that much leverage, right? Because there are, well, because in general, most of what yoga teachers do is teach in studios. There are a limited amount of slots, and to procure those slots to get on the schedule you maybe go through an interview process maybe you network maybe you you know know somebody that teaches there know the owners of the studio whatever is the process for getting an audition or getting in on the schedule you go through matter of fact you know now there are more and more studios that have a, a pretty formal process for evaluating teachers going through auditions and getting on the schedule <clears throat> And because there are so many teachers, we don't, as teachers, often have um, an ability to really play uh, with what the rate's going to be. So we may go into a studio conversation and have in our head that we'd like to get paid $75 a class. And they may say to us in that conversation, well, our rate for teachers is $40 a class. So if you'd like to join our team, this is what your rate would be per class. So at that point as a teacher, you obviously have a decision to make, right? <clears throat> and so, <clears throat> excuse me, part of what is going to go into that decision is number one, <clears throat> do the first thing is, do you want to accept a position where the rate that's being offered is less than what you believe your rate is, your value as a teacher. And keep in mind, this conversation may be with the studio where you trained, right? And so you may have already contributed to that studio or you may have already paid that studio, I should say paid, not contributed, $3,000 to take their training. And now you're having a conversation about getting hired, 
uh, to be up to be a teacher. And the going rate that they're offering you is 40, you know, 30, $40 a class. And so there may be in your mind a disconnect there. Now, I'm not saying that that's right or that's wrong. All I'm saying is you need to decide at that point whether you are willing to accept a teaching position at a studio at a rate that is less than the rate that you've set. And what might be a reason for that, right? Because I've certainly done that over the years. And one of the reasons I've done it is it's a studio where I want to teach. It's a studio that I believe is consistent with the presentation of yoga in a way that I like to present it for the most part. It's a studio where it's convenient for me to get to, which is a huge, huge thing. It's a studio where I feel like the student population, right, the foot traffic is a community that I could connect with that might appreciate my style, you know, kind of my presentation of yoga. And there may be other things. Maybe it's a studio where you really want to get a network built with the other teachers, the senior teachers that are there on staff. So you're saying to yourself, you know what, my desired rate and based on my experience, my value as a teacher, I believe is $75 a class. They're offering 40. That differential is worth it. And plus I can walk there in five minutes. So I'm really cutting back on my travel time or I don't have significant travel time regardless of the weather. So those are the kinds of things that I suggest you take a look at when it comes to making a decision about whether or not to take a teaching job in a studio where the rate they're offering is less than your rate. And let me just go back to this idea of setting your rate. So as I said earlier, there's the issue that a lot of teachers struggle with around I'm new and I'm not sure what rate to set. What I generally advise teachers is to start for studio classes at the baseline of $50 a class. I think $50 a class is in general kind of a middle of the road rate, although I have heard teachers in different parts of the United States that are getting paid as low as $25 a class in different gym settings and studio settings, including studios where again, they did their training, their 200 hour training. I, I don't know, there, there are a lot of conversations we can have about whether or not that's right. Although it's very difficult for us to have those conversations because we just don't know enough about what's happening at the studio level. And because studios are businesses, without access to that information, we really are unable to make an informed decision about whether or not that's fair and reasonable given whatever financial uh, information that they have as a studio. So again, it really, in my opinion, doesn't make sense for us to get our energy kind of consumed in that way. What we need to do is look at as teachers, what is our rate? What are we hearing is the opportunity? And to evaluate if that's something that we want to pursue. And like I just said, there may be other, other reasons why we decide to pursue it anyway. So first place to start is whether you're a newer teacher or maybe you've been teaching for a while and you really haven't had this conversation with yourself, set your rate. And this is really, really important because when you have these conversations, you don't wanna be stammering around what your rate is. You wanna be able to confidently say, this is what my rate is.
Now, let's make a little shift to this issue of setting a rate for non-studio-based work. And so this would be your private sessions. This would be any kind of specialty setting yoga class. So you're asked to teach at a golf resort. You're asked to teach at a school. You're asked to teach outside family yoga. I, there can be so many different um, scenarios. And that's what's so interesting and exciting about yoga teaching is that you have the freedom to not only create these opportunities, but to potentially get hired for opportunities like this. And again, in these kinds of scenarios, you are the negotiator with the client. And so you have a lot more freedom around setting the rate. So what I generally suggest to teachers is that they start with a rate of $125 for a private and also use that rate for any kind of specialty scenario. So whether that's a corporate class or a private group, maybe a, um, a bridal party says, hey, we would love to get the whole you know, bridal party together to do yoga the morning before the wedding. It, again, so many different scenarios. You're asked to teach a specialty children's class. You're asked to teach um, to a nonprofit, let's say the Boys and Girls Club. Again, the, the opportunities are, are really, endless. I usually suggest starting at 125 for that. <clears throat> and again, that even includes privates. I've had some teachers tell me they're charging $60, $70 for private. In my view, that is too low. If you are even a newer yoga teacher, you are working with someone one-on-one. -on -one. Many times you're going to their home. Sometimes they're coming to the studio. You know, again, wherever the location is, you are providing individualized instruction. You can look at it like a massage. You can look at it like a personal training session. These are scenarios where you're giving individualized attention to a client. And I would say at a minimum, it should be $100, if not $125. <clears throat> okay. So we talked a little bit about when to hold steady on your rate and when it might make sense to shift your rate. And that um, shifting of your rate like I said earlier, you know, if it's in a studio scenario, it could be you really want to teach in the studio. There may be other reasons. When I was mentioning, it's really close. It's super easy to get to, things like that. In terms of other non-studio teaching opportunities, maybe this is a nonprofit where you really see an opportunity to build an ongoing relationship for classes ongoing. So that may be a reason to take a cut in your rate because it's a chance for you to get your foot in the door. Um, maybe you're being asked to do something for free, right? Over the years, I've done many, many free classes, especially as it relates to family yoga, outdoor yoga, different children's yoga um, programs with different nonprofits. And I've done it because I believe that it's a part of my business to offer what I do for free when it's in a scenario where I'm providing service to a nonprofit, to a part of the community, to a specialty group, those kinds of things. And I would definitely encourage you to look for chances to do that, to share your love of yoga with people who maybe don't otherwise have access to it. So of course, because we're yoga teachers, a big part of our business or a part of our business is going to be that kind of pro bono work. And that may be one of the reasons why you cut your rate or in fact, do something for free because it is part of your kind of personal belief and value system that you want to make a contribution in that way. Now, 
there are some factors that I would say should uh, encourage you to adjust your rate. So these might be if it's a specialty group. So let's say you're being asked to teach um, folks that have physical challenges or some other kind of clinical scenario. You're being asked to teach in a rehab setting with rehab, client, uh, rehab patients. You're being asked um, maybe to, you know, there's so many different scenarios in terms of population, but I think you get it. If there's any kind of special population, that definitely would be something that I think should increase your rate. If the travel time is significant, if you need to bring a lot of props, you know, anything along the way uh, as you evaluate the opportunity that makes it uh, more complex, your rate should reflect that and you should feel completely comfortable in justifying your increase based on the additional factors. And so when, again, this is another really important reason why it's, it's key to have these two rates on the tip of your tongue. So kind of your studio rate and your rate for non-studio work, because you're gonna start there as the starting point of your conversations with either the studio or the client. And you wanna be able to you know, have a sense of what are other factors that might increase your rate and be able to confidently explain them, to not, again, stammer and kind of you know, not be able to clearly explain it. And that oftentimes comes from a lack of belief, right? And so this is where I get into a little of the philosophical part, a lack of belief around what you're worth. And this is absolutely something that I think sits with newer teachers. Um, and I think it's something that we need to address in all teachers, but especially newer teachers that once you go through your 200 hour training, which is no small feat, mind you, right? You are coming out of a specialty training and you should have a, a really strong comfort level around the baseline rates that you are going to offer for services in both studios and, and not in other scenarios. So when it comes to negotiating rates with studios, I talked about this a little bit before, but just to kind of button it up a little bit, you know, again, as you first start out in embarking on an opportunity to teach at a studio, have a sense, if you have an opportunity to talk to other teachers that teach there, do that. I'm not saying ask them what they're paid. I think that is a very personal question and I don't think that that's something you should ask. I've never asked any other teachers in over 15 years of teaching. I've never asked anybody what, what they're paid and I wouldn't do that. Um, but what I'm saying is there are other things that you can ask other teachers that work at a studio. You can ask them about the general vibe of the studio. You can ask what kind of um, ongoing teacher support there is. There's plenty of things that you can find out. In addition, when you're beginning that process of looking at teaching at a studio, have an idea of whether or not you're gonna be willing to shift it all on your rate. So be prepared for them to come back and say, our rate is X, X being lower than your standard rate. And so have a little bit of a scenario kind of played out in your mind about how you're gonna to respond to that. Because ultimately you're pursuing the opportunity because you wanna teach there. And so the issue is how much do you wanna teach there and what good reasons would there be to take less than what your standard rate is. And when you go into those conversations, Really, really important here, guys. Really try not to be defensive. 
<clears throat> try to look at things as objectively as possible and to not take things personally. And I know that's hard, right? It's hard for me, it's hard for everybody. Just look at it as a business conversation. And even over the years, as things come up, if you, you know, uh, are working for a studio for a number of years, just kind of, you know, go with the flow of things and really, really work to just keep things on a business level, on a professional level, without um, getting emotional about things. These are all things that just add additional pressure and cloud um, our judgment when it comes to issues around pay and money, which are already loaded issues for reasons that will get you towards the end of the podcast when we talk about some of the philosophical themes. Now, when it comes to negotiating your rate with private opportunities, whether that's private clients or whatever, usually when it comes to private clients, if someone is interested in hiring a teacher privately, they're usually willing to pay some amount of money more than, you know, obviously what they're going to pay for a group class. And I would think in general, most people are probably likening it to getting a massage or some of the other working with a personal trainer, some, maybe some other scenarios um, I haven't mentioned here. So in general, my sense is most potential clients are going to be thinking around $100. And so whatever you decide your rate is, whether you take my recommendation for $125 or something in between, maybe $80 and $125, you're going to just state your rate confidently. And unless there's some particular reason you really, really, really want to work with this client, um, or maybe you really, really, really feel you need this work, I would say hold steady on your rate. You know, this is a conversation you're having with an individual that wants to hire you for one-on-one -on -one services. You're the expert being uh, asked to, to take on this work by the client. And so you can pretty much confidently hold steady. And, you know, my sense is that most teachers would not have a problem doing that. I think the potential problem can come into play when we have this need to just take the work. And again, this is a little bit on the philosophical side, but I would really, really caution you against that because if you take work that is at a rate that is less than what you feel your value is you'll only grow to resent that work you'll resent going you'll resent teaching you'll resent the client you'll resent the studio class whatever the scenario is you're only going to end up resenting it so i'd really really encourage you this is one of the really important reasons to feel comfortable that your rate that you're getting paid is commensurate with what you believe your value is as a teacher now Going into um, negotiating with private contracts, right? So we talked about studios, talked about uh, private clients. Going into private contracts, that's where I'm suggesting somewhere around 125 is again a rate for any kind of specialty thing. I would absolutely, absolutely suggest that you have something in writing more than an email to outline what your agreement is. And I've got some different document templates in my book and I can, also email you uh, a template if you're interested, um, just to kind of give you a little bit of a framework. It's nothing fancy, and I don't necessarily think you need it. Um, I would just basically say, whatever you do, don't depend on an email chain to confirm what you're gonna be paid, how often you're gonna be paid, if it's an ongoing thing, and how they're going to pay you. Are, are they gonna give you a check when you show up? Are they gonna put you on direct deposit? Are they going to mail you something in the mail? You have to get all that clear before you take on any kind of specialty contract work. And when you're negotiating with that kind of client, that's the time if there's any kind of special request where you're going to confidently state my, um, my rate is 125. However, 
because this does require an hour's travel, I'm going to add in $50 to cover for travel back and forth, both, both in terms of lost time and travel costs itself. Or maybe it's something else. Maybe you never even state what your baseline rate is because in hearing their request from the beginning, you notice several things that are going to make this a specialty request. You notice it's far away from where you live. You notice it's a specialty population you're going to be teaching. You notice you're going to need to bring a lot of props, all those things. So maybe you never even have to start offering them the 125 rate. Maybe right out of the gate, you're going to say, this is $175 for an hour and 25 minute session. So I'm not going to kind of give you all the framework around how that conversation is going to go. But again, knowing your baseline rates for both of those scenarios, teaching in studios and teaching uh, specialty and private is really, really important as a teacher. Now, how might experience play a role in setting your rate? Well, of course, as you gain more experience, your rates are going to go up. It's just like in any other scenario. I'm sure attorneys that get hired straight out of law school don't have an hourly rate the same as uh, attorneys who are, you know, part of the, the core group of attorneys in a, in a practice or whatever scenario you want to you wanna look at. So yes, as you gain more experience, your rates should reflect that. Um, and I think that's going to be something that you're just going to have to monitor over time. If you've been teaching for more than five years and you haven't increased your private one-on-one -on -one rate, you should do that. Right? You've got all this extra experience teaching. You should have your rates reflect um, your additional experience. And that, again, is part of valuing your experience and valuing, valuing yourself. So now that we've talked about just general themes, let's just take the next few minutes and let's look at some philosophical themes about money. And I have to tell you, you know, this has been a huge, huge part of my personal development over the past two years. I've worked um, over the past year and a half in particular with a neuroscience coach on several areas of um, challenge that I have been having personally. And when I started working with her last summer, it was really because I was at a crossroads in my business. And a lot of the challenges I, were facing, I was facing were around business growth and therefore revenue and therefore essentially money. And I realized in my work with her and several other things I've done uh, over the past probably six or eight months or so to really examine my relationship with money. And through this work that I've done and things that I've read and, and help that I've received, I've realized that I personally have had some really, really messed up thoughts about money. And these are not unique to me. These are really common feelings and thoughts that people have about money. And, you know, I'll just share with you that at this point in my life, I actually have developed a relationship with my money that I liken to having a relationship with a friend. And I even have on my desk a love note that I've written to money and I have a crystal sitting on top of that love note. Now this may sound really weird, um, but I will justify it till the ends of the earth because it's really helped me shift my thinking about money. Where I used to feel like money is really, really scarce and there's not enough to go around, now I have this sense that money is a free flowing entity in the universe. 
And my always worrying about it was creating this fear and this feeling of scarcity that was absolutely affecting my teaching. And it was affecting it in terms of the kinds of jobs I was taking, the worry that I had about the, uh, the strength of my business, the path of my business, my work with per, you know, certain clients and, and that kind of thing. So let me just share with you just some general themes. And these are, again, not just themes that I've touched upon. These are themes that you will hear out there. And this idea about treating your relationship with money like you would treat a friend that's not unique to me that is something i've heard on different podcasts i've listened to with different experts that have financial background but who have really shifted into helping people develop a better relationship with money not just looking at it as your checkbook ledger and your online ledger around your accounts so let's talk about some of these things. So this idea of do you operate as if there is a free flow of money in the world or do you feel that there's barely enough to go around? Because one of the things that I know for myself, as I mentioned before, I always felt like there wasn't enough money to go around. And it really, you know, part of what we do as yoga teachers, right, is we manage energy. We go into a room, we read the energy of a room, we get a sense of kind of the vibe and we work with our sequencing. And certainly as we get more experience, we do this even more. We work with our sequencing to try to complement uh, the energy in the room. And this is part of what is a, a helpful, a healthy view about money, that money is always flowing. It's flowing out, it's flowing in, both for us personally, and even if you just look at the stock market, right? We all certainly have an appreciation how over the years, especially back in 2009, 2010, with the stock market crash, you know, that there is a free flow of money, right? And even though we personally may feel like right now it's not flowing to us, even in small ways, if we open our eyes, we can get an appreciation for money flowing. And, you know, in the context of our yoga teaching, you know, we're providing a service and we're receiving an acknowledgement for that service, not just in the form of money, right? Of course, we're receiving um, an acknowledgement for our service in the form of appreciation for our students, our students showing up to take our classes, we can show our students our appreciation for their being there through many different ways, just acknowledging them when they walk in the room, that kind of thing. Getting paid for what we do is another acknowledgement of the universe to basically say, I recognize you for providing this service. And there's nothing, there's nothing to be ashamed about in regards to that acknowledgement simply because we're providing a service. We wouldn't say that about a doctor or a nurse or a social worker or a therapist, anyone else who's in a helping profession. And so this is kind of where, you know, we need to make peace with this idea that money is flowing and have a belief on some level, a faith that that is the nature of money. And that even if right now it's not flowing to us in the way we'd like, that things can shift. Now, let me kind of ask you kind of a related question. This idea of do you worry about money constantly, especially as it relates to what you get paid for teaching? And this kind of gets back to what I was saying before in regards to if you take a teaching opportunity when even in the back of your mind, you're thinking, 
this rate really isn't consistent with what I'm worth. And I really, really, you know, have to stress that those kinds of jobs will quickly turn into jobs you resent. And you definitely don't want to get into that kind of situation. So if you're finding that you're constantly worrying about money, my recommendation would be that you sit down and you take out a piece of paper and you start to write down what all your worries are. Because at the end of the day, all of this worrying about money is definitely not good for your health. It's not good for your students as you go in and teach. It's not good uh, in terms of a place to come from when it comes to negotiations or when it comes to having, you know, when I was talking before about having impartial, rational conversations with your studio partners, with your client partners. So we really want to take care of our feelings around money ourselves, because that only helps us as we go into these conversations with our business partners, whether it's studios and, and other clients that we work with. Now, let me ask you this question. And this is, I think, a big, a big, big issue for yoga teachers. Do you carry a lot of credit card debt and primarily use credit cards to fund your yoga trainings? Now, I can tell you, there are so many trainings I would love to go to. Once a year, I like to go to at least one training. But I can tell you that when I look at what is out there, what I would like to do and how much it costs, more times than not, I need to make the decision that I just cannot afford to do it. And, you know, I don't know anybody else's situation. I can only speak for my own. And I can absolutely say from my own experience of building up $30,000 of debt, which wasn't from training, mind you, that was just having that shortage from month to month. But even if you're looking right now at five, eight, $10,000, $15,000 of debt, which you've accumulated over the years because you have gone to different trainings, flown all over the world, pursued um, you know, 300, 500 hour extensive trainings, uh, which are absolutely worth it and important, but at what cost? Because now that debt that you have is something that you may carry for years at an interest rate of 15% or more. So this is really one of those critical decisions that we need to make as yoga teachers in regards to once I get my basic 200 hour training and I begin to teach, experience in my view is one of the best teachers. That is where the rubber meets the road. As you go through the years after your 200 hour training, Work as hard as you can to make rational decisions about the value, the added value of receiving additional training and at what cost. Because if your only opportunity to take that training resides in putting that cost on a credit card, my recommendation to you would be not to do it. Now, I know I probably sound like a dad or a mom and probably a buzzkill. Um, I can only speak from my own experience with having significant debt. And also, I can speak to my experience as a teacher that experience is your best teacher. And when you're out there in the professional community teaching, whether it's, again, in studios, with private clients, with um, with uh, uh, business clients, you know, corporate or, or other kinds of things, 
having multiple, multiple advanced trainings may not necessarily make a difference, right? You can be trained till you're blue in the face and still stand up in front of a class of 10 people and be completely paralyzed about how to actually put all that training into action. So I think in general, it's reasonable to set a goal of one training per year and at a minimum, at least be able to pay half of the cost out of your own pocket. If you have to put half of it on a credit card and you're only doing one a year, that's, that's probably the best of the worst case scenarios. The best case scenario would be annual training that you fund completely, not on a credit card. So the next question is, um, do you have a good relationship with money? And how do you demonstrate that, right? How often do you balance your checkbook? I know that kind of sounds like a completely foreign concept, but I balance my checkbook. I still have a paper checkbook. I still make sure that I know where every dollar is going. I look online. I know on the checkbook itself, there are things that are there that are not online, like checks that are outstanding. You know, whatever your personal situation is, I'm not going to get into personal finance. All I'm saying is following your money to um, a certain degree is a reflection of how you feel about money and if you have a good relationship with money. If you're walking around with hundreds of ATM slips in your wallet and you have no idea when you go to the bank and you get a slip what that number is going to be, oh look, I have $60, oh look, I have $600, that's not having a good relationship with money, right? If you only hear from a friend once a year versus someone you keep in touch with on a weekly basis, right, I think you know where I'm going. And so this, again, gets to, you know, if you have worry over money, if you have bills stuffed in a drawer somewhere, you know, all these things. And what does all this lead to? All this leads to stress and stress gets in the way of us being clear when we stand in front of a room and teach. So I really need to continue to make this connection with teaching because this is a podcast for yoga teachers, right? This isn't a podcast on finances, but this is an opportunity for me to bring to the fore an issue that I absolutely believe is a big part of teaching and doesn't often get discussed. And this is part of the reason why I started this podcast, not to continue just to bring up things that are great to talk about, but um, common. I also want to use this podcast as an opportunity to bring to the surface things that I think, topics that I think are important for yoga teachers to talk about, a lot of which are on the business side, which don't often get discussed. And then the last question I have for you is, do you feel that holding steady on your rate in a negotiation for a job is a demonstration of self-love? And I would absolutely say that that is yes. If you hold steady on your rate and walk away from a job because you truly believe that you are worth X number of dollars, that is an act of self-love. If you raise your rates because you've gained two more years of experience or you've taken that additional training and paid for the whole thing out of your pocket, which is wonderful, you should raise your rates. That's an act of self-love. All of this is an act of recognizing yourself for your experience and for your dedication and your value as a person. And that is part of loving yourself. So these are all themes of yoga. 
right? These are all themes that we can look at, whether it's, you know, in the, in the um, flow of yoga, the asana, the, the postures, or meditation, or any of the, of the other limbs of the practice itself. So I'm gonna end here. Um, I think this is a good place to, to stop. I really, really, really thank you for listening to this, especially because if you've been listening to this podcast for a while and you're kind of maybe a little you know, surprised by this topic, I really wanna hear from you. So please comment wherever you're listening, please leave a comment. And I want to also um, let you know, I'm really excited because at the end of this month on April 30th, I'm doing another one of my online masterclasses on anatomy. I'm going to be focusing on the anatomy of the hip and the spine at 6 p.m. Eastern on April 30th. Now, this is a live online masterclass, which means I'm going to be presenting a presentation to the teachers live. And then after the presentation, you're gonna get a chance to ask questions. I'm gonna be using the Zoom platform, which I use for my private uh, coaching I do with teachers, as well as webinars that I do, um, as well as online masterclasses like this. And because this is a live presentation and you're gonna get a chance to ask questions, I limit this to 10 people. So only 10 teachers are gonna get a spot, a seat in this master class. And because it's online, it's super easy to do. You can do it from a coffee shop. You can do it from your house. You can be sitting in your pajamas, you know, sitting on your couch. It's a great way to learn anatomy from wherever you are and to receive some real one-on-one -on -one support when it comes to the questions you have. And it's about the anatomy of the hip and spine, which is definitely <laughs> applicable to yoga. So this is April 30th, 6 p.m. Eastern. There are only 10 spots. Each spot is $125, so really, really inexpensive for this kind of training. This is training I do in person, so this is not diluted training that I'm just doing online. This is the exact presentation I do in person when I work with teachers to do this kind of training in person. So to sign up for this online masterclass, just go to my website, barebonesyoga.com, and you will see the, um, the link on the events page to sign up. So thank you so, so much for listening. And I hope you have a wonderful rest of your day. And don't forget to please leave a comment. Thanks for listening and namaste.